This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This week on Hangar Talk, Hartzell props are getting a little more pricey. And Pivotal, formerly known as Black Fly, opens sales for their light e-VTOL called Helix. AOPA calls on the FAA to work on beyond visual line of sight a little more. And the mosaic comment period ends with a kerfluffle. Finally, another blow to unleaded avgas testing. Ian, are you ready to do some Hangar Talk? Let's do it. From AOPA. Your freedom to fly. This is Hangar Talk. The 1056 turn right heading 130, counterpack final 132.4. With your hosts, Ian Twombly and David Tulitz. This is Hangar Talk. Welcome to Hangar Talk, everybody. I'm Ian Twombly. And I'm David Tulis. Ian, you caught up with our special guest. I did. I did. Yes. Well, it wasn't so hard. She she works down the hall. So our guest this week is Sarah Diener. She went out and flew, reported on and then flew, the Velis Electro. This is the Pipistrel. used to be the Alpha Electro. You and I have talked about it a lot. Mm-hmm, it's the right. only, the world's only, I guess if you don't include China, so the Western world's only certified electric, fully electric airplane. She flew it in, in Wichita because now obviously Textron owns Pipistrel. Right. And they have one out there. And so she talks about that experience a bit. I am interested in hearing from Sarah Dina in her own words how it was to fly that thing and how loud or how quiet it was. Yeah. And we do talk about that. So yeah, we'll get we'll get to that. So let's talk about Hartzell prizes. Okay. And, um, let's do. Yeah. Boy, this is a <laughs> tale as old as time in that... Uh, private investment firm bought Hartzell and yep. prices go up almost immediately. They went up a lot, Ian. I, I, I was trying to find our previous hangar talk where I said that I predicted that this might happen. Yeah. And um, you're right. This is almost as old as time that when a, a big company buys a small company, there changes. But uh, dramatic changes here for Hartzell where prices for, like I would use a Skytech starter. That's one of the products that's mm-hmm. in the Hartzell line. Yeah, right. And it used to sell for about 500 bucks, and now it's going to be $1,300 with a core return. Yeah. And, and by the way, thanks to AvWeb for posting this story. And I'm just worried about that kind of thing, you know, and on down the line, because Hartzell owns, is, you know, they own a whole line of aviation accessories. Yeah, a range of accessory right. businesses. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and of course, they're a top... I mean, you know, the prop business. So I went out there a couple of years ago. We did a craftsman story and it's fascinating to see how they create these props and, and how they build them. And it is largely automated, I will say. So the the traditional metal props, it's incredible. You go through the factory and it's quiet and all you see is a bunch of, I mean, there are obviously people still manning machines, 
but um, it's not people stamping out individual parts and, you know, shaping individual blades. It's, it's all robots. And so obviously there's a couple ways you can, one is efficiencies and one is you're going to jack prices. And so they've jacked prices. I, I will say the, the, at least when I was there a few years ago, the composite shop was still relatively hands-on. But yeah, they uh, they have jack prices. I mean, I think they're talking about a 50% increase for certain prop blades. Obviously, those are to shops, but shops will pass those prices on to consumers. Right. So yeah, unfortunately, kind of, it wasn't hard to see this one coming. And, and here it is just in very short order. Yeah, for instance, just ballparking um, a propeller blade that um, Avweb mentioned in, in their story. That used to cost about seventy three hundred bucks before the acquisition is now almost eleven thousand dollars. Yeah. So putting it into actual real terms, and you know, a lot of, well, for instance, when I owned the Mooney, that had a constant speed adjustable HC two YK or something like that propeller, and they, you know, there was a lot of uh, consternation among Mooney owners because there was a recurrent AD. And it would have been just more simple to buy a new propeller and quit doing a recurrent inspection. Mm-hmm. That's when propellers were about seven or eight grand, yeah. which is still nothing to sneeze at. Yeah. But going up to, you know, eleven, twelve thousand dollars for the same unit and really nothing has changed. But yeah. ownership it hurts. Is to, uh, it hurts, man. It's a bite. Yeah, absolutely. It does hurt. So one of the growth opportunities that Hartzell is going to have in the coming years is eVTOL and making uh, eVTOL props or rotor blades or rotor props or whatever they're going to call them. And so we talk about those largely in terms of uh, whatever they're, you know, for us is is charter, right? So point to point kind of navigation for consumers. But some of them are coming to the pilot world. And one of those is Pivotal, which was Opener, which was Blackfly. Yeah. And they're making a an ultralight. And this thing's going to be what's well, on sale now. And it's going to be out very soon. Ian, if you have 190000 bucks, 190 to 260 grand, you can get the Pivotal, formerly known, uh, the company is formerly known as Opener, as you mentioned, uh, the Helix. It's a s- scalable production aircraft. It's got eight motors, four on the front, four on the rear. It's operated much like a drone where... There are different RPMs for the different rotors, and that helps you steer the unit. And it does automatically take off and land, much like a drone. And mm. you've got a 20-mile range with a 20% reserve. You can cruise the coast of California, which is where I am right now. That's why it might sound a little bit different on this podcast. You can cruise at about 55 knots and 500 feet per minute climb and descent rate. So it's interesting. I think it's interesting. You could put this thing into a trailer. Mm-hmm. If you've got some disposable income, you could put that trailer behind your RV mobile home. You could tow it to somewhere cool like the Grand Teton area. Yeah. And, you know, assuming the airspace is not restricted and I haven't checked it above the Snake River, you could cruise the Snake River for 20 minutes and come on back. Or twenty miles and come on back. Yeah, what do you what do you think about that? I love your positivity. I think it's completely misplaced. Um, <laughs> this is yeah, because you because you don't need a certificate to learn oh, to fly God. the thing, right? Okay, so okay, let's talk about the ultralight world for a minute. Okay, this is the ultralight world is largely a world of I think tinkerers, right? People who are uh-huh. really interested in their own designs or really really inexpensive paths to the air. So you're talking about, you know, single seat, very light, lightly wing loaded 
quote-unquote airplanes, also a lot of power parachute kind of stuff, hang gliders, that sort of thing. And so, yeah, you don't need a pilot certificate. I don't think necessarily that people who are in that world do it because you don't need a certificate. I think they do it because that's it's relatively inexpensive flying and it's fun. It's fun. It's yes. tinkerer and it's get in the air and let's let's grassroots yeah. lower than grassroots. Yeah. If you have a quarter of a million dollars, I think the the lack of training is not necessarily a benefit. I mean, this is it's like, oh, you don't need a pilot certificate. It's like, well, you probably should get one. I mean, okay. I just don't see the value. If for okay. a quarter of a million dollars, you can buy a really nice backcountry airplane that'll take off and land yeah. in many places. Yeah, a I Cub mean, Crafters model or yeah. uh, you know, or an older Super Cub. Sure. Yeah. Adjust adjust airplane for backcountry. Sure. Yeah. Exactly. And if you want to trailer something, spend 50 grand and buy a gyroplane that has the same capability, or actually better capabilities, is safer, and you can get with a relatively minimal amount of training. I mean, you're talking sport pilot type training. It's going to cost 50 grand. You don't have to take it apart. But you have to have the training. Yeah, but so what? But you have to have the training. <laughs> I know, so what? It's like, <laughs> you think people with a quarter million dollars... I mean, they're worried about their safety. They don't right? have the They've time got... for the training, Ian. I'm being, let's do uh, the dogfight here with you. Okay. Okay. Yes, they might not have time for the training, but they're smart enough to go get trained anyway. That's you a know? good point. Like, <laughs> I just, I don't see the benefit to this. I mean, the video, it's cool. I will say the videos are cool. You know, it's like the, they get, you know, it takes off kind of like the slingshot and you get John, you know, you get launched into the air and, uh-huh. And then you fly it around with a joystick, and that's pretty cool. But, man, I don't know. To go 20 miles for a quarter of a million dollars, I just I just don't see it. Well, so does that mean you're not going to be standing in line with a $250 non-refundable application fee deposit? No. Or the 50 grand for a real deposit for one of these things? No. I would take my 50 grand and go buy a gyroplane and have more fun, uh-huh. be safer. Yeah. Well, you would have the training. I mean, that would be the other thing that you just mentioned. Yeah. You'd have, you'd have yeah. lights. Assuming you had no training at all, and then folks who know you know that you're a CFII, but any individual could take that same amount of money because we're talking $200,000. Yeah. So the, the counterpoint to, to my you know, suggestion to just cruise the national parks is that you could probably be better served by actually learning about airspace mm-hmm. and flying in areas where you're permitted to fly. And that's the other thing. With uh, an ultralight, I mean, I would think you still need to be obligated to learn about airspace and TFRs and everything. Yeah. But but yeah. do you? You know, that's a good question. I don't know. I mean, I know they they know they're not supposed to fly over congested areas, but that's a great point. I don't know what sort of airspace people learn. I mean, you don't have access to training. I have. How would you learn? I have no idea. And here's the other thing. I'm flying along in my tripacer at about, say, 1,000 feet, and up levitates, uh, one of the, <laughs> up levitates one of the one of the pivotal openers. Well, I'm sorry, one of the pivotal helixes. Yeah. And and because it, it takes off vertically and lands vertically, and I, it, I'm I'm making a guess. Does it have to have ADSB or no? Maybe not. You know. Oh wow, that's a great point. Yeah. 
I so no. I would not know yeah. it's there. And then, of yeah. course, you need to look out. It's, you know, it's a, a VFR pilot, so you need to look out the cockpit anyway, but it's going to be darn hard to look out the cockpit to see something rising from below us. Yes, that's true. I'm just saying, this opens the door yeah. for a lot of issues, potential yeah. problems. Yeah. I, how many UFO reports do you think we're going to have with these things? I mean, because if you look at the video, it does, it looks like <laughs> you would think that's, let's see, it's not a helicopter, it's not an airplane, it's just sort of sits there. I, I don't know. It's uh, it's wacky. I, I mean, I, it is. Uh, yeah. Somebody will buy it and fly it around and, and more power to them. That's cool. But I think that person should become a pilot. I agree with you. And that's a good transition to our next story that we're going to talk about, which is beyond the visual line of sight operations for drones. Yes. And so that Helix is kind of a larger version of a drone. Right. But manned. And so we're talking about unmanned. Right, right. Yep. And BVLOS, in case uh, listeners haven't heard of that, it means beyond visual line of sight for unmanned aircraft systems, also known as UASs. Mm-hmm. And a- APA has been working behind the scenes uh, for a long time with industry partners to think about integrating some of these new rules and, and regulations that might come on board to make sure they don't negatively affect us in general aviation. Yep, that's right. So now one thing that we're concerned about is is any changes in equipment and equipment that we might have to have in our airplanes. We were just talking about ADSB and, you know, will drones need to have ADSB? Well, they already do have to have a thing called drone ID where I went ahead and bought a, a dr- for an older drone, I bought a little module that sticks on the top of my current drones. And a lot of the newer drones have this built in, the remote ID. Right. Yeah, we talked about that a couple of months ago. That's right. I remember. Right. And the pilot, by the way, also has to be registered in the system. And it's mainly just to keep drones out, uh, drone and drone operators out of working fires and and law enforcement operations, things like that. More, It's more or less a way to keep tabs on, on where you're not supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But the problem is for us is that, you know, as pilots, and as you just mentioned when we were talking about the, the helix, you got to know the airspace and you got to know the regulations mm-hmm. and you got to know right-of-way rules. Yes. And so AOPA is, is against changing the right-of-way privileges that we as GA pilots are already adhere to. Yeah, that's a so big thing. That's why we're talking about this. Yeah, and yeah, and in fact, and and so yeah, the news hook is in December. AOPA with a bunch of other associations sent a letter to the FAA as part of this rulemaking committee about beyond visual line of sight. So the beginnings of how the FAA is going to going to regulate that, saying that yes, right of way should not change. And I think a bigger issue, especially, well, especially for me because I'm not equipped with ADS-B, nor do I have to be, Right, is that uh, I think that the drone community, the UAS community, is saying, well, manned aircraft should all have ADS-B and sort of flipping it back onto the manned community. Oh, no, no, no. Our rules are set and have been set. We worked hard on those over a long time. Right. We can't require any additional equipage for manned aircraft. That's a, that's a key part of the strategy. Yep. And the right, the right away, because the, the other thing is that if you don't know where the other aircraft is, you know, you need to figure out where it is, and, and we could do it electronically when we're using ADSB. Yes, of course, but we don't like right now. The slowest operating aircraft has the right of way. Yeah, in many cases, yeah, that's right. Drones are like, well, hot air balloons are are super slow. Yeah, you know, the drones are pretty slow. Now you could make them go super fast, but 
you know, most consumer drones, uh, they're not going to go beyond about 40 miles per hour. Yeah. Although you can get them, you can rev them up. And there are some bigger models that, that are actually very large yeah. unmanned vehicles that can go pretty darn fast. But the right-of-ways, you know, like, do we need to start seeding right-of-ways to a to a yeah, a, no. to a one foot by one foot drone. Yeah, I mean, and I, I'm not. I don't want to do that. No, and there's gonna, there's too many of them. And I think that's the to me. I think of right away more as maneuverability, and so they're more maneuverable than we are. I mean, it's a lot easier for them to change course and climb and descend, and they do it faster, and and they can see us better than we can see them. And so, yeah, I think it's their responsibility. So, right. So, lots more to come on that. I think in the future, in terms of how that's all going to shake out. But just to to make it clear on AOPA's position there, it's like I think you know no extra equipment for the GA community and no right away changes. And I think those are both sound policies. And we'll be right back. All right. Hey, more government stuff. Lots of medicine this week. The FAA Modernization of Special Airworthiness Certification, also known as Mosaic. We've talked about it many times. It's essentially, you could dub it uh, LSA update. And um, that goes for a lot of aircraft and pilot certification changes. And so AOPA recently submitted comments on that. The comment period just closed. Uh And as you said, there was a bit of a kerfuffle because actually one association (laughs) had different things to say at the end of the Mosaic comment period. That's true, Ian. And um, I was actually surprised to see that that Gamma, uh, the General Aviation Manufacturers Association, had a little bit of a pushback with this because it, unless I'm reading this incorrectly, a gamma says that maybe we should hold off on some of the changes because, you know, gamma doesn't want to see more complex aircraft, as in in Europe right now. You could fly retractable gear aircraft mm-hmm. under All LSA. Cool stuff, yeah. Right. And, yeah. and you know, h- higher horsepower engines and, and things like that. So I was actually surprised to see pushback from gamma on that. Our main concern, AAPA's main concern, is that this that mosaic addresses some of the concerns that we talked about earlier with 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 it's all performance based, but yes. upping the the stall speed a, a few knots so that it yeah. so that it so that it covers and encompasses a traditional Cessna 182, for instance, and a, a four place aircraft, typical four place aircraft, if you will. Yep. Piper, yep. uh, Piper 180s, Cherokee 180s, things like that. Yeah. So, um, and and um, there are other bullet points to talk about, but yeah, there's a bit of a kerfluffle because yeah, because I, I think AOPA kind of likes it. Yeah, yeah, difference of opinion there. AOPA likes what we've what we've proposed so far. Yep. So in the comments, AOPA said increase the maximum stalling speed uh-huh. to 61 with safety enhancing devices, but a minimum of 58. I think that's good. So that include all the traditional I think that's trainers. Super yep. important. It is very very important for that. Yep. Increase seating capacity to four for all categories. So it was apparently suggested that it would be four for airplanes, but two still for helicopters, gyroplanes, and others. And so it makes sense just to include, you know, and to do that. Okay. Allow support pilots to carry three passengers, which would be awesome. So in other words, if you have a four-seat airplane, occupy all four seats, you plus three others. Yep. Or so I'm sorry. I should have said four-seat aircraft, yeah. not airplane. Yes, aircraft is the idea. That's right. Because it could include a helicopters and gyros. Yep. Looking to raise the altitude restriction to 12.5. It's currently at 10,000. I think that's smart. I mean, that helps people out west primarily, obviously. Well, so. uh, you and I were talking about this offline real quick. And, and you know, moving the TriPacer from Hood River, Oregon to Maryland last March, 
you know, you got to cross the Rockies and 12,500 feet MSL, mean sea level, could really help individuals cross. It would make an LSA pilot transcontinental capable, I think. Otherwise, you have the, the restriction right now is at 10,000 feet. Yeah. And so that would be, you could probably pick your way through a canyon and be okay crossing the Rockies that way. But that to me seems way more dangerous, yeah, right? Way more, more dangerous. dangerous. Exactly. Right. Yep. There's also a noise standard they talked about. And then finally, the ability to fly at night with an endorsement for sport pods, which would be that really would nice. That would be good. Yep. Yeah. Well, you would still, uh, we still need an FA medical or basic med, yeah, right? To, to do fly that at now. night. Yeah. And a okay. private, we're saying that should change. So the comment period is closed. 1,300 comments to the docket. So now the FA will have to read through all of those comments and basically collate them and then respond to them in kind and, and make changes. So it'll definitely be into, I think, late into this year, if not early next year, by the time all that happens. So you, you don't think we're going to hear about it during Air Venture in July? Nope. Too early. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's a drag in a way because, I mean, I w I've really been hoping that some of the changes would trickle down to to my type of flying and other folks who have 172 Cessnas and other popular four-place trainers yeah. because in a way that also might not just open, it won't just open the skies to other individuals, but some of the other safety devices that are out yes. there might also be grandfathered in and would help us have a better, you know, better safety in our aircraft yeah. and things like that. Yeah, it's a net positive. Absolutely. All right. So the final thing we're going to talk about is fuels. There has been a bit of news about that since we last talked about it. And, you know, we know that obviously with the GAMI fuel and we're doing a lot of work there, but the PAFI process is still going on. That Piston Aviation Fuels Initiative of the FAA. And there's a few fuels going through that. And AVWEB is reporting that one of them has paused testing the Philips 66 blend because of some failures, some test failures. That's a key word, failures. The Philips yeah. Afton fuel, it was powering a Lycoming engine in a test bed for about 150 hours to test endurance. And the reporting shows that the test engine failed due to a buildup of manganese deposits that fouled the spark plugs and or cause pre-ignition. And, and as pilots, we know pre-ignition is an easy and quick way to fail an engine. That is something you don't want to have happen when you're um, on high power takeoff roll. Yeah. And, yeah. That, and that kind of thing is really startling, in my opinion. But it, it only leaves three other total players and only one yeah. other player in the PAFI initiative. Yep. And so uh, the Piston Engine Aviation Fuels Initiative, which is uh, like a government-backed initiative to, to get the lead out. Yeah, that's the, that's the FAA's process. And the, I think the, the at least today, the way it stands, the uh, implication of PAFI is that, of course, if, it's, if it runs through the PAFI process, it'll be approved for the fleet. Right. Whereas obviously with the GAMI fuel, that's an STC that's required. And so there's some a little bit of onus put on the operator there and some other things. So, and Swift is going the same route. So the, the, it is a big deal and it's disappointing. And this is what happened the last time with PAFI. So yeah, the, I, I don't want to say this exact failure, but the, one of the fuels apparently did fail. And what, another interesting thing here, just from an insider perspective, is that with the last PAFI process, we didn't really know what was going on. It was real, it was almost like secretive. It was like almost it inside was. the cone of silence. Yes. You know, yeah. you, it was yep. going on and we never heard about it. We didn't know incremental updates. 
we were assuming things were moving forward. We didn't know the yeah the pace. We had no idea. We didn't know anything. who the players were. Really. Right. Yeah. So yeah, this is this is really interesting that we know not only the players, but but of course what's going on. So yeah, this is a big deal, and and I think it's too early to say what's going to happen next with with the Phillips sixty six um, after chemicals fuel. We just we we don't know yet. But there is one other player under that PAFI initiative, mm-hmm. and we have reported on that before uh, on Hangar Talk, and AOPA has reported on it recently. I want to say right around the end of the year, the beginning of this year. Lyondell Bissell VP Racing Fuels is also going yeah. through the PAFI process. I haven't heard anything this week about that, but it's, you know, the, the fuel still being evaluated as well. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so they're you know, still going. Yeah, yeah. We, so we got to keep our ear to the ground on that. So the, the government yeah. side of this program is still moving ahead, but really now with only one player. Yeah. You yeah, can say. really interesting. Yeah. All right. So, hey, David, do you know what type of airplane doesn't care about unleaded a- aviation fuel? <laughs> yeah, that is such a good transition for the, the, the Velas Electro by Textron yes. slash Pipistrel. I can't Electric wait to hear from aircraft. Yeah. you and Sarah. Sarah, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. So you flew the Velis Electro recently, and this thing, I've been really interested about this thing for years, ever since Tom Horn went to fly it in Europe. So, But you went to Wichita, so things have changed since since we last saw it. Yes, they have. So when Tom Horn went to Slovenia to fly the Pipistrel Alpha Electro several years ago, it was a new product from Pipistrel, which has a reputation for a lot of electric aircraft innovation. They won the NASA Green Flight Challenge. And now the certified version of that, the updated version is the Velis Electro that was certified in Europe in 2020 as a light sport aircraft. And after that, Pipistrel was bought by Textron. So now, along with all the legacy Cessnas and Beechcraft aircraft, Textron Aviation Flying Club has a Velis Electro. Hmm. So it's part of the flying club. It's not necessarily something they're doing in the factory. It's like a factory demonstrator or something like that. It's like employees are actually using it. Right. So it came from a Florida distributor and they got one on site. They had to get a waiver to use it for employee training flights and demonstrations, that kind of thing. Because in the U.S. right now, light sport aircraft cannot have electric tarpons. Hmm. Right. So how is it different? I mean, the, a new name, right? They, they change names relatively often. How is the Velis Electro different from the Alpha Electro that we saw earlier? The biggest difference is the powertrain. So this motor, motor controller, and battery combination was entirely developed by Pipistrel. Everything from the software to the batteries themselves. Oh, wow. And the Alpha Electra, I believe, was a Siemens motor. Mm-hmm. And this one has some differences. The batteries are liquid-cooled, a combination of liquid and air-cooled. They are not removable. They just stay in and charge in place. And there are some minor differences in kilowatts. But most of the differences I don't think you'll see from an operator standpoint. It's a lot of software, battery management. You have to make sure with electric power that it doesn't overheat when it's charging. And so there are a lot of behind-the-scenes innovations that Pipistrel has been working on for 
several years before many other manufacturers even came on the electric scene. Hmm. You mentioned that it was certified in 2020 in, in Europe, uh, EASA certified. So who's buying it? I mean, are these individuals who, who are early adopters? Are they flight schools or flying clubs? Who, who uses it? It's mostly flight schools. The advertised endurance for the aircraft is a little under an hour, which means you're not going to use it to, for cross-country flights. You're not going to go to other airports. This really is meant to be used for training in, in conjunction with another airplane. So ideally, from Pipistrelle's standpoint, it would be the Alpha Trainer, which is the Rotax-powered counterpart. But you could also have any number of other piston aircraft where someone could do their local flight training in the Velis Electro and then move on to cross countries and something else. Okay. So I guess we should back up a little bit. So you mentioned LSA. So two seats. It's it's electrically powered, fully electric, right? Um, not hybrid or anything like that. And so what, what else is, is distinctive maybe about the airplane? I mean, what, what does it look like and feel like and that sort of thing? Well, it looks a lot like a motor glider. Uh, Pipistrelle has a history of motor gliders. So anytime you've got those long, thin composite lines, you're going to have a really good glide ratio. It's going to be sensitive on the controls like any LSA. Hmm. It's very lightweight. So one thing that I guess I shouldn't have been surprised at, but that was a little bit surprising, is just how normal it feels when you're flying it. You know, it's like many other LSAs. It handles just like an LSA. Pretty docile handling characteristics, just like a typical trainer. But the big difference is the power plant management. Yeah, right. So you get in it and it and it feels like a normal airplane or like I should say what we're used to. So but it's all about that power plant. So how is that different in terms of like pre-flighting and then run up? And I mean, what what's all that like? Yeah, so obviously you don't check the oil. You don't have some of those typical pre-flight checks. During the walk around, you're checking for any signs of a thermal runaway. There are some uh, placards that will blow out if there's any um, overheating you check the coolant levels in the battery. So you pull the seats forward, check the battery there, and then there's one battery in the front. But it's very simple. And then when it's time to start up, there are four switches. And when all of those four switches are on, the propeller's hot. And all you do is move the, the throttle forward and it starts. So there's no, no cranking, no all of a sudden it's starting. You could start at a really low RPM. It just is like a dimmer switch, you know, it goes up and down smoothly. Hmm. Is it, I was going to ask you, is it twitchy? Because like I think of electric and I think of all that torque. And so you can imagine just pushing it up off the stop, the throttle, and it's like, whoa, all of a sudden you're like flying down the ramp. I mean, or is it, does it feel kind of natural or is it twitchy? It felt very natural. I mean, it wasn't abrupt at all. It just sort of slowly accelerates and hmm. comes back down. When you pull the throttle back to idle on the ground, the propeller stops, which is a little bit different. Hmm. In the air, it will regenerate a little bit if you're at idle power. Okay. So continue to windmill. And then what about the run-up? I mean, so much of what we do in the run-up is, is engine checks. Are there any sort of checks you have to do pre-takeoff? Not really. I mean, you're looking at the battery state of health and state of charge. So that is something that you've got to pay attention to the whole time. There are oral alerts as it gets low, but you want to make sure that you're tracking on that. But there's no, you know, you're not checking magnetos. There are very few moving parts. And was it with the takeoff and and then flying it, was it, was the noise reduction noticeable? I mean, is it noticeably quieter than a traditional airplane? 
It is. Um, you know, we still wore headsets, so there's some there's some noise from the propeller, but it, it's a very quiet airplane. Hmm. Which I know in Europe, I mean, that's part of the. Obviously, there's the fuels issue and emissions, but you know, noise as well. I know is a huge issue for them in a lot of places. Yeah, in Europe, they're having um, a lot more pressure than we have here stateside about noise and then the environmental impact. And so this is something that started in Europe and the market is still in Europe in part because of the regulatory landscape, but also because of those social pressures. Yeah. So you mentioned staring at the battery health and battery endurance. And so I'm curious, I mean, we, you know, we, we come to manage fuel in that we don't sit there and stare at the gauges and watch them tick down. We do it through time and, and expectation and calculations and everything. What about with the battery? I mean, I feel like I would just sit there and stare at the thing the entire, almost you're using your phone a lot, you know, and you can like watch the battery tick down. So I have a, a Prius that I drive and, you know, they have the little display there where you can see how efficient you are at any given moment. And mm-hmm. it, that kind of thing can be sort of mesmerizing, right? Because you're like, oh, I didn't do as well this time. I got rated on it. And I can see how it would be. It's definitely something that you pay more attention to. And when I got, when I finished the flight, we did a half hour flight. When I was done, I, I thought back and I was like, you know, I had too much power in the in the pattern. You know, I could have dialed that back. We could have gone flying for longer. And so, but like the Prius, you know, it was it was mesmerizing for like a week and then yeah. I got over it. So I think it's one of those things that you learn to be more efficient with the operations and then and then it's normal. You adapt. Yeah. And then the the, the charging. So the endurance is, you know, a little less than an hour. Obviously, there's a little bit of a margin there, but you're done. I mean, if they're talking about this for a flight school, it obviously has to recharge relatively quickly. So what's what's the charging system and, and how does that infrastructure, how is that going to be built up? So Pipistrel has a, well, Pipistrel, which is now part of Textron eAviation, which is a business unit of Textron, they have a proprietary charging system and it looks very much like an EV plug you probably mm-hmm. could fit an EV plug there, but because of all of the safety mechanisms and the way that it needs to charge so quickly, you should only use what Pipistrel has. But ultimately, it depends on the setup of the flight school. So even at the flying club, they had to find the right power source to make sure that they could charge quickly. And they said it's about an hour to, to charge up to full after a flight. But if you have a slower electricity source then that could be two hours. So it's something to consider for an operator. Yeah. It's interesting because, I mean, when it first started, it was, you know, they they touted this replaceable batteries, right? These packs that they could just slide in and out, which for a flight school is even more efficient than the fuel truck. But I guess given the safety aspect and other things, it's like you kind of have to go with the plug. But it, it does make you think about, well, if you're trying to run an operation where an airplane flying every hour, it's like you need at this point, at least double the airplanes because the one is going to sit while the other charges and vice versa, right? Right. And that's definitely a consideration. You have to have a decent sized fleet so that it could always be utilized. Now with the removable batteries, each battery pack is 150 pounds. So I can see how that could be just a safety issue if that that's going to be hard to get out. And if you drop it, there's a pretty steep consequence there. Yeah, absolutely. So was your sense that this is a just a first step into kind of electric and, and being able to better optimize the technology? Or do they feel like this is mostly a completed product and they're going to kind of move on to new things? Or wh- where does this lead them? Well, they're still working on iterations of the battery system. And so that's something that they plan on rolling out different versions of. There are plans that are 
a couple steps away for the Panthera, which is supposed to be certified. I believe next year is the current target. After they certify that with the uh, internal combustion engine, they're looking at a hybrid option. So within the world of general aviation, they're still working on those core Pipistrel models. But Pipistrel also has the R&D division, which is Pipistrel Vertical Solutions. And they're working on the Nuva cargo drone. And under the Textron e-aviation umbrella, there's also the Nexus product, which is used to be under Bell. And when they created the e-aviation division, they brought it all together. And so the general aviation market is pretty small comparatively. But then you also have this eVTOL growth market where there's so much investment. And I think what Textron is looking to do is to use that technology and the development across across multiple areas. Yeah, that makes sense. And you were just telling me, I think it was yesterday we were talking that, I mean, obviously there's this one that's in Wichita for the employee flying club, but then there's this, I don't know if whether it's a flight school or this flight training consortium or whatever it is in California. And they've had these for a little while and trying to get an exemption, I gather, from the FAA in order to operate them. Because like you mentioned, it's an electric power plant, which the FAA doesn't necessarily recognize. And they've been working at that for quite a while, I guess. Yeah, I think since about 2017, this public-private partnership has had four Alpha Electro trainers, which is the earlier version of the Bellis Electro. They've been gathering data on operations, but they haven't been able to use it for flight training. Mm -hmm. And so just this week, I believe, is when they were granted the petition for exemption, which will allow them to do certain flight training operations. And that's for other operators looking to do this, that's a great first step. Now, Textron has also submitted its own petition for exemption to allow this to be operated in the U.S. as a light sport aircraft, the Velis Electro, to be operated as a light sport aircraft in the U.S. The FAA hasn't as yet acted on that, but this could be an indicator that maybe it's around the corner. Hmm. That's interesting because that's a much bigger ask, right? I mean, you're not talking about one operation necessarily. You're talking about being able to go more, you know, widespread. So... Certainly give it an avenue because I think there's, you know, people like to focus, I think, on the the shorter endurance and, you know, the higher cost and all that sort of thing. But it's like just I can imagine there's a whole slew of people who are interested just from a technological standpoint and want to fly it. Right. I mean, new students who are really interested in technology who would think it's a really cool airplane and it's cool to learn to fly in something like that. Yeah. Any industry is going to have early adopters who are willing to sacrifice some of that practicality to have the cutting edge technology. And so I think this as well will have some of those people who just want to have the the coolest new product. Yeah. Neat. Well, Sarah, thanks so much. I appreciate it. And glad you were able to go out and do it. Thanks. It was a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. I think my favorite part about the whole electric thing is just the simplicity of operation because as a, I don't know if you remember when you first learned to fly airplanes, but managing the engine and starting the engine and the pre-flight checks and the pre-takeoff checks and shutting it down, it's all completely foreign. And it's hard to teach, actually. It takes a lot of time, a lot of effort. And so just to be able to say to somebody, flip these switches and push this thing forward, that's awesome. You know, that is interesting, Ian, thinking about that, because there's such there's such black magic to 
you know, Lena Peak operations or, or like how much, how rich do you want your aircraft to be or, or lean do you want it to be you know, in the summertime? You know, how do you, on these older airplanes, how do you even yeah. accurately adjust that without real, you know, modern gauges? Yeah. So you're, you're right. right. Taking a yeah. lot of that, a lot of that behind the scenes, you know, voodoo out of it would really be helpful. Just push the button. Push, push the thrust lever and go. Off you go. Yep. All right. Hey, that's all the time we have. I'm Ian Twombly. Our editor is Austin Hansen. And I'm David Tulis. Don't forget, you can find us at aopa.org slash hangertalk and wherever you get your podcasts. All right. We'll see you. See you next time, Ian. Hanger Talk from AOPA. Your freedom to fly. <laughs>